from the book of Mark chapter 5. This gospel reading has two healing stories, one sandwiched between the other. I will focus on one today, the story of Jairus and his daughter. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at Jesus' feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. And then Mark tells the story of a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, who is so desperate, she reaches out to touch Jesus' cloak, and he feels this healing power go from him, and he stops the crowd, and he turns and finds the woman in the midst of the sea of people, and he asks her why she did this, and she says her need, her aching need for healing. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And the story continues. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the leader, Jairus' house, to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When Jesus had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, whom, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you have ever had a friend or maybe not quite a friend who likes to one-up you. When you say, oh, I got this item on 50% discount, This friend responds, say, oh, that's great. Did I mention this great item I got for 99.9% off last week? Or you say, I saved a puppy this afternoon, and a friend responds, oh, that's great. Did I mention how I saved a whole litter last week? This happens in families. It happens in school settings and on sports teams. My seminary friend said she and her sisters had a term for this called a 601-er. I'm not sure where exactly it came from, but one online dictionary I found said, use the example of the game show, The Price is Right, where one contestant would bid $600 on an item and the next contestant would bid $600 and one. We don't have to look hard to find examples of one-upping each other in our public life. Sometimes it seems competition can reign supreme. 
And competition isn't always bad. Competition helps focus and motivate people. And indeed, in some situations, like sports games or election cycles, it is necessary to have a winner and a loser. And yet, there are situations where it isn't helpful to focus only on competition. If we are always trying to mark one person or one group as winner and the other as loser, it can cripple us. In sports practices, it can cripple teamwork. In political realms, it can cripple legislative work. In the religious life, it can cripple our own sense of God's grace and abundance. If we are so saturated by a mentality of competition that we become driven by fear that they will beat us, if we approach every day, every interaction as a zero-sum game, then we become worse people, worse citizens, worse Christians for it. Indeed, last week we saw how this mentality of one race triumphing over another crippled and poisoned a young white man. He saw a world filled with fear and competition where one race was supposed to win and one lose, and so he decided to eliminate the competition. So while competition isn't necessarily bad, competition should never have the final word. It shouldn't rule our life and tell us how we're supposed to think of one another. Indeed, if we only ever saw the world in terms of competition, in terms of winners and losers, then these two scripture passages today wouldn't exist. David wouldn't weep over his political rivals, Saul and Jonathan. Jesus wouldn't heal both the bleeding woman and the daughter of Jairus. If competition always has the final word, then most of the Bible would disintegrate and disappear. In the Mark passage, we are told several times that Jairus is the leader of the synagogue, which means he is a leader, a prominent figure in the community. Jairus makes an extra effort coming himself, not sending a servant. Jairus makes an effort to come to Jesus' side to beg for help for his dying daughter. This important man uses precious time to ask Jesus for his help. It is a powerful moment of humbling. Jesus goes with him. But then Jesus stops. Jesus makes this important man wait. He uses up Jairus' precious time and makes him wait, not just for anyone, but for a woman. A woman who has been unhealed and probably ostracized from the community for a dozen years. Jesus stops and pays attention to this woman, talking to her, while Jairus is probably standing there, counting the minutes that he is losing. And then the tragic news arrives. Jairus' daughter has died. While Jesus stopped to spend time with the woman, the daughter died. So far, if we are calculating this exchange in terms of winners and losers, it is clear that Jairus, the leader of the synagogue and community, has lost. The unhealed woman has won. She got Jesus' time and attention and healing first. The competition is over. Yet as we can see and hear, the story doesn't end there. After healing the woman, even when all hope seems lost for the daughter, Jesus goes to her bedside. 
he takes the daughter's small hand. He commands for her to get up, and she does. And then in a gesture of simple compassion, before he leaves, Jesus instructs the bystanders to give this hungry 12-year-old something to eat. Jesus does not forget about those who need him. When he chooses to spend some moments with the woman, he has not forgotten or stopped caring about Jairus or his daughter. This is not about a competition for Jesus' attention. Indeed, there is no competition when it comes to Christ's love. This is good news. This is a word of hope for our weary souls. And yet, still, you and I look around and realize yet again and again that we live in an unhealed world. A lot of rhetoric tries to fan our fears. We are often told that if someone different than us gets rights or freedom, then our rights or freedom are threatened. Indeed, this is the mentality that fuels groups from white supremacists to ISIS. Their worldview cannot hold the idea that their God might love another who is different than they are, that God might love another just as much as them. We live in an unhealed world. So what do we do now? As we are waiting for God's justice to flow down like a river and cover the earth, what are we supposed to do here and now together? I believe that the second Samuel passage that Steve read offers us some guidance. What are we supposed to do when we're confronted by a world that is desperately in need of healing? We can start with lament. We can start with lament and grieving and listening to each other's laments. A lament is a public declaration of grief a profession of sadness that isn't confined to an individual, but is instead supposed to be heard by the entire community. Lament declares that the world isn't yet as it ought to be, and so we are grieving. Lament is what David is doing in this text through the beautiful and painful words that we heard. David is mourning the deaths of Jonathan and Saul. David does not hold back. He pours out his words of grief, of lament, he professes his love and commitment towards Jonathan. In case you don't know, here's some brief background leading up to this passage. For many years, David has been fighting Saul and his armies. Both David and Saul are vying for the same throne. Saul is the king, but David is leading an uprising against him. If Saul or his offspring win, David is a traitor. If Saul and his offspring die, then David becomes king. These are pretty clearly high stakes. This is a deadly competition. One doesn't go after another's crown and not expect there to be a winner and a loser. So when David gets news that Saul and Jonathan are killed, that the rival army is defeated, that he has won, what does David do? He laments. David laments publicly. And there is not one note of triumph in his words. David will become king. He will take that crown that Saul lost. He will become a great king of the nation, remembered for generations. 
But now David does not stand tall like a winner. He collapses to his knees in grief. And he does not let others dance in victory. He commands all to join him in this act of weeping. He calls upon the land itself to grieve. He demands that the rich and privileged, clothed in crimson and luxury, not watch from afar. They, too, must join the lament. He calls upon all the daughters of Israel to mourn the fallen king. This passage often gets skipped when we're reading through the scriptures. It's not often read aloud in our worship. And there are different reasons for this, including the tough words that the reader has to stumble over. But perhaps one reason is that we in our modern American society are not very good at public lament. We don't do it very well. Many of us do remember after September 11th how there was a remarkable display of unity and grief around the country. Community leaders joined together in song, clergy of all faith joined together in prayer vigils. Unfortunately, that moment stands as an exception rather than a rule. More often now, it seems after a tragedy, we jump to blaming, blaming the victim or someone else, saying that if only a certain person had done this or that, he or she would still be alive. Or we jump to taking offense, claiming that we are actually the victim, we have been affronted, we are the ones in danger. And so we stock up on ammunition, both metaphorical and physical, because we are afraid. Or we look for reasons to excuse ourselves from needing to mourn altogether. We say things like, well, he was no saint, or she must have had it coming. We want to find a reason to exempt ourselves from grieving this loss. We are not very good at public lament, and we are even worse at taking time in the life of our community to listen to each other's lament. That's why learning from David's lament here can be a powerful act. David does not use this opportunity to voice a mentality of competition. He doesn't immediately become a triumphant winner. He does not dance on the graves of his political rivals. And he does not keep silent or put on a brave face. David is showing us what it means to mourn and grieve in community in front of others. His act of public mourning does not let others off the hook. His words include everyone. Each of us is familiar with individual grief. grief. No matter what our age, each of us has lost something and has had to learn to live without it. This is tough, painful, bruising work for anyone, and unfortunately, the message we often receive is that we must get our acts together on our own. David's lament reveals that stoic individualism is not our scriptural witness of grief. David admits how personally he takes this loss, and he also mentions how the whole, what the whole land will lose, how the entire community will grieve. In lament, the competition is over, and everyone has lost something important. A tear has been ripped into the fabric of God's creation. A family will never be the same. A community will never be the same. We will never be the same. 
And it's important to note that lamentation does not disappear once we get to the New Testament, once Jesus enters the picture. Grief still erupts in places like the house of Jairus and his daughter. Jesus himself will later weep as he is on the way to the tomb of Lazarus. And before he goes into Jerusalem and towards the cross, Jesus will shout words of lament over the city. Jesus knows his work isn't finished, that healing and reconciliation and redemption will come, but still he grieves and laments. If you have had a chance to watch any of the funerals from the Charles to Nine over the past week, you'll have had a chance to witness the power of lament, how it forces us to pay attention to each other, to notice each other, to listen to each other. Those who came together for the funerals showed us how to lament, but also how to have hope. Incredible, stunning, heart-wrenching hope. Hope in the face of hatred and terror. Hope in the heart of lament. These are Christian witnesses to be able to hold lament and hope alongside. Because when we read the gospel, we are reminded that Jesus is with us. The work of the world is not finished, no matter how much we grieve what it is now. God has not abandoned us. The Spirit is still moving and weaving us together into new patterns. There is still hope. And yet, in this gospel and this lament, with this hope and conviction, we must remember that there is no more competition in Christ, all will be made new and reconciled. All will lose and all will gain by God's grace. Before the rebuilding, before the healing, we must cry out that this world is not yet as it should be. We still need help. We still need God to show up at our side. We still need to get to work ourselves. And we still must listen to those who are crying out for peace, for justice, for healing. So the next time someone expresses words of lament, let us not try not to silence them. Let us try not to one-up them or ignore them. Let us try not to take offense or to take cover. And let us not assume that we are exempt from the grieving. Let us listen. Let us listen to these laments and perhaps join them and then let us listen for the footsteps of Jesus who is coming to our side. There is no competition. He is on the way. He cares for us. He loves us. Jesus is coming to make all things new. There is no competition. Let us pray. Lord, grant us the ears to listen to the lament of others and the words to proclaim our own grief. By faith and by your grace, we will also continue to try to hope. And then with love and with your grace surrounding us, we will get to work. Help us with these things, O oh Lord. Amen.